Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us on today's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen, Ken and Murph all here and ready to go. Hello there, Owen. Hello there, Kenny. Albeit a little shell-shocked with the massive bust-up between our two favourite British broadcasters. That's right. Steve Ryder and Gary Lineker are going at it big time, Ken. And it all centres around incendiary remarks made by Lineker about the fine gentleman at the Royal and Ancient. So Lineker does an interview, right, in which he criticises the rulers of British golf. Oh, I say rulers, the guardians of mm. British golf uh, for their decision to take the Open from the BBC and give it to Sky from 2017. I think the RNA have always been very difficult to deal with, says Lineker. They live in a world where it seems they feel they are superior beings. They're old school. They are born from an era which gives them entitlement, which the rest of us aren't. I felt that pomposity when I got the job as presenter on the BBC, right? So Lineker's predecessor as the face of the Beeves Open coverage is not having this. Steve Ryder. How, I mean, how dare somebody suggest that the members of the Royal and Ancient may have mm. a few notions about themselves. Do you want to hear what Ryder had to say? Uh, yeah, go on then, on. Maybe an abridged version. I don't, even want to, I don't even want it to be abridged, though. I mean, it's all just so... We haven't heard enough from Steve Ryder over the last couple of years. Steve I Ryder mean, went to ITV. I'm not sure what he does uh, these days. He's he's effectively the Greta Garbo of uh, <laughs> sports broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to be alone, Ud. Uh, as far from any live or indeed, you know, abridged highlights packaging of, of sport as possible. We interviewed Steve Ryder once, didn't we, a few years back? Many uh, years back. Yeah, we. I remember we, were, we, we did... Uh, <laughs> slot where we asked people for their Six Nations predictions, you know, kind of in February. Uh, so I remember an abortive attempt to uh, <laughs> I remember an abortive attempt to get Gavin Lamb Murphy, uh, who was, you know, one of the key socialites throughout the Celtic Tiger, but he was too wise for me, and uh, he said, call me back in three minutes. I called him back in three minutes. And he was he, going through a tunnel. And he never answered his phone. That would have been a that would have been courageous journalism. <laughs> but you did get through Picking to Steve on, Ryder. on the uh, then pretty much universally reviled Gavin yeah. Lamar. You just, just call him up just to just to have one more dig. I know, I know. I know. And you I didn't, didn't even think about his feelings. I saw the man on, on the street recently and I chuckled to myself at the memory of the... <laughs> anyway, Steve Ryder was another man on my, my hit list. What a hit list this was. Yeah, and... Um, 
<clears throat> I think maybe I don't know. Was it you that were asked the original question, and then I was going to come in? I don't even know if I was involved. No, in this I don't think you were actually. I, I think we probably spared you that. So I asked him for a Six Nations prediction, and then I was going to ask him about. Um, <clears throat> oh yeah, I was. I was going to ask him. Lansdowne Road, of course, Steve, uh, is an extremely windy venue known throughout the rugby world as the windiest venue in world rugby. How do you manage to keep your hair so perfectly coiffed throughout television broadcasts? And he kind of dead batted that one, to be honest. Uh, he he just, I think he just laughed and said, you know, you're a clever boy or something like that. This and is great. I feel, I feel really good about accepting a call to talk to this program, whatever it is. <laughs> it sounded <laughs> yeah. like rather a sneery tone to that entire set <laughs> yeah, of it's true, right? predictions. Anyway, this is what he had to say, right? I hold Gary Lineker in the highest regard as a football presenter, but his reflections on his experiences as a golf presenter need a huge reality check. For four years, the RNA and most other observers knew that Gary was the wrong man in the wrong job. Hazel Irvin has just delivered once again at the Open presentation skills of the highest quality. Not many people can do that, and Gary certainly came up short. Roger Mosey, the head of sport, knew Gary was a golf fanatic, and was I l- listened to this for a loaded line, and was further encouraged, bearing in mind that uh, he that Ryder had just left the BBC, barely out the door for RTE, right? Roger for Mosey, UTV. For UTV. Roger Mosey, the, unless it was, uh, I don't know, there might have been a hiatus in RTE that we didn't know, but anyway, Roger Mosey says, uh, or, Writer says Roger Mosey knew Gary was a golf fanatic and was further encouraged by Gary apparently volunteering for the Masters vacancy within a few minutes of my exit from the television centre. <laughs> I don't know why it says Masters. Like, obviously, he was looking for the Masters. But if Mosey thought long and hard before offering Gary the golf job, it's even more baffling. Match of the day is scripted and rehearsed. Golf presentation, especially at Augusta, is seat of the pants, unpredictable and demanding. And then he goes on basically to say, look, the Orne are a great bunch of lads. I don't know what, where he's getting all this information from. Right. Um, Sorry, Steve, but I think Sky already have their presenting uh, uh, team for golf. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, that, that's the first thing that I thought. It's like, is he pitching for a job that Sky have already filled that job? Who they does ha- Sky have? They have a guy. They have a guy. Right. I, you don't know the guy. I, if you're asking me for the guy's name, that's Bruce Critchley, isn't he? Not their main. That's that's exceptional work. If that's the guy that I'm thinking of, it's it, he's. Uh, a hairdo, much in the much in the style of Steve Ryder, but uh, mostly inoffensive. And um, yeah, I mean, Sky, that's Sky's guy. I'm the sorry, Steve. Dig at Lineker's presenting of golf. Match of the day is heavily scripted, but the World Cup coverage isn't. And funny enough, I always thought Lineker was much better and shows his talents a lot, a lot more. Uh, shows a wider range of talents when he's doing the World Cup because he doesn't have to just link from one thing to another and talk for 60 seconds to Danny Murphy about something uh, when they both know the answers to it. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't have any strong feelings about Lineker's performance as he an open it. presenter, but yeah. uh, I, don't think, I don't think the technical challenges of it are beyond him or were beyond him as, uh, as Steve Ryder likes to... Well, I mean, is presenting a golf program really like, I don't know, being an air traffic controller? Seat of your pants. I mean, it's golf. You've got a lot of time <laughs> to work out what's going on as it's going yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, yes, the show is nine hours long. But at the same time, everything is happening at an extraordinarily slow pace. I mean, it takes these guys 20 minutes to play one hole. I mean, I think Gary Lineker, Gary Lineker can react over the course of a day. As long it. as you have the energy levels, as long as you have your little seeds and nuts, I'm sure Gary Lineker eats pretty healthily. Hmm. He's probably got some superfoods there that he's uh, nibbling on all day, then you should be okay. This the is course. your latest fad, Owen. Hmm? Your latest fad. You're sitting there with this little... Um, 
little beaker of uh, seeds and and uh, like goji berries or whatever. Yeah, I think it's gonna. Himself and Simon have a nice little super, thing going in the strength. office. If people don't know, just handing nuts back to each other. <laughs> I mean, <that's... laughs> would you like some seeds? Nah, I've got some here. Nuts. Yeah. No, no. no I, have, I also berry. have. I also have a bag of nuts. But when I run out on. You're going to be the first man I'm going to talk to. It's All Ireland Hurling quarterfinal weekend coming up. Dublin Waterford and Galway Cork. We'll have Limerick's Seamus Hickey on hand for that. But we're going to start at the Tour de France where Team Sky, owned by one of the biggest media companies in the world, continue to show an astonishing lack of understanding of how the media game actually works. Quick background to this, right? There was a video that came out last week which was released by one of the big anti-doping campaigners in France which showed Chris Froome's famous climb to Mont Mont Ventoux in the 2013 tour when he really broke the back of that one and, uh, and set up victory. It showed the cadence and heart rate data which was either leaked or was hacked, whatever way you want to phrase it. Froome blasts to an astonishing victory in the first stage in the Pyrenees this year and Dave Brailsford is on French TV when he's confronted by footage of that stage win, complete with a physiology expert pointing at Brailsford. Well, I actually see the coverage, you know, but this is, he's, he's accusing uh, Froome, uh, showing bits of data and raising huge question marks over the legitimacy of the performance. So Brailsford says, well, I've been ambushed by this, so I'm going to do a press conference, which he does, uh, in which they say, look, we've got nothing to hide. Here's the actual data for this climb the other day. Uh, this is one of Lapierre Saint-Martin. But rather than release all of the numbers, they throw out a few carefully selected statistics which tell the story that they want to be told. And this is the issue that I have with all this, right? Sky were within their rights to defend themselves and Brailsford probably was ambushed. But they argue that their critics use whatever data they want to suit their own agenda. And yet Sky's own idea of full transparency is to do exactly the same thing. I'm not really sure what the point is. I don't know what you think, Ken. But if they're... I, it seems like they're caught between two stools. They want to be seen to be transparent, but on the one hand, they say that they can't. On the other hand, they say they can't be transparent because they're giving away a competitive advantage to the other teams by giving all their data out. So they end up doing what everyone else is doing and giving an, a, a, a bridged version of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, what uh, I, I've, I've got, I don't have much time for what Sky are saying, to be honest. Sky have complained a lot about, oh, we're under so much scrutiny. And every time I, I see Chris Froome, he seems to be saying, well, we, we're, we're being asked a lot, in this kind of mild way, yeah. we're being asked a lot of questions and you know, there's always a lot of scrutiny of, of us. And, um, you know, uh, if, if other GT contenders are also being asked these questions, you know, I don't know if they, if they are. And he kind of is, he's complaining that they're, okay, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, you're winning. That's so, so obviously the guy who's, who's winning is going to get more questions than anyone else, you know, by a factor of 10. Number two, they said they were going to win the Tour de France with a clean rider. That was their, that was their mission statement. We are going to do this drug-free. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be like the past. Uh, so having set that out as the, as the goal, I mean, I, I've, I've heard David Walsh uh, talking about this uh, in the last little while, and he's saying, you know, Sky said they were going to win the Tour de France in the next five years, and, and they've done it twice and put people's nose out of joint. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, but they all, no, they said they were going to do it with a clean rider. That that was also part of the promise. So, so it's, it's up to them to, to prove that he's constantly proved that he's clean or consistently. They said that's what we're going to do. How can you complain about people wanting that verified? If Sky wanted to put out information, wanted to put out data which 
was to show that he was clean. Maybe, you know, maybe they are giving away a little bit of competitive advantage, but suddenly it puts the onus on everybody else to do the same thing. So maybe you're not really losing in competitive advantage. If the focus of suspicion shifts to other, other teams, maybe they then have to also release the same information. Maybe everyone's doing it. Maybe then you actually have transparency. Walsh was interesting and off the ball last night. He said that it's not about the numbers, it's about the people. This is the way that he works, that he says, right, people don't really understand this data anyway, so what we have to do is find witnesses to any wrongdoing. And he says he's tried to do that, and he's talked to all the people who've left the team, none of whom have anything, don't, haven't even got a whisper to say against Chris Brim. Yeah, I mean, this is the... This is the thing. I mean, what you can, what you can get from from the the sort of data that's been published by you know various people have kind of come up with. Well, you know, I think Chris Froome is you know putting out this much uh, watts per kilogram, and you know this is you know, a little bit suspect, and so on and so forth. Um, that can give you an indication that you know it, it can it can it can give you a sort of a probability in your head you can kind of decide for yourself is it, you know can i believe in this guy you can kind of use that to back up it's like when lance armstrong was winning all those races and part of you is always thinking you know it is funny the way he's he's always able to beat all these dopers he just <laughs> smashes these dopers year after year how is he able to do that and the kind of conclusion that you would really you know have to kind of come to was Lance Armstrong is probably a doper. You know, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to imagine how he could not be doping and doing this. But that's not the same thing as being able to sort of say definitively, say in public, for instance, say on the record, Lance Armstrong is a doper. This is, this is what's going on. The guy, is, the guy is cheating, you know, blah, blah, blah. That what, what Walsh and others uh, obtained was proof. I mean, that, what, what you're talking about is proof there. Uh, like, this kind of stuff isn't proof because it's imperfect. I mean, you can say... But it can be part of an overall picture. Yeah, it can be part of a picture. It can give you an indication, but it's not the same thing as saying, yes, the, here we have it, here it is confirmed. You know, this is this, the smoking gun or whatever, because it's not. There's, the, the problem with uh, an argument based on data in this instance is that there isn't enough information to, to build the Which the is case. why I'm surprised that Sky are getting embroiled on that side of it. I don't think they... Uh, have handled it well in a PR sense and this has been one of a number of mistakes that they made. I always, funny, I always sound, when I listen to Chris Froome talking, I, I'm always more convinced by him than I am when I hear Brailsford and his team talking. They, they never fill me with any sort of confidence about what they're doing because they've set themselves out with this holier-than-thou idea and they've probably got to a point where they realise, well, you know, we're in this very cutthroat professional sport and not everything can be as perfect as maybe we had made it out to be at the start. Anyway, these are questions I want to ask Matt Rendell, author of The Death of Marco Pantani. He's working at the tour for ITV. Matt, it's great to check in with you. Are you enjoying the race this year? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a great tour. I know we've got a, you know, one, one rider in Chris Froome who's superior to everyone else, but, um, you know, Quintana lost time, not through his own fault, being held up behind a crash, you know, early on. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, he's, he's, he's been aggressive and there's still a lot of climbing to do. He's very determined and, uh, you know, I, I still think we've got a race here. I still think we've got a race here. Has yeah. the, you mentioned Froome, has the release of the data on Tuesday, uh, we're, we're a couple of days past that now, uh, yeah. and the, the, I suppose yeah. the dust is settling. Has that done anything to change people's minds or to quell the storm around Froome this year? Well, it hasn't. And, and I think because there hasn't been a proper storm. There's been innuendo, there's been insinuation, um, there's been cowardice on the part of 
not least Laurent Jalabert, a rider who's associated with Dr. Michele Ferrari and Onse and so on. So, you know, what, what, what possible um, conclusion we should draw from that? Otherwise, the, the sheer bit-faced hypocrisy, not only of... Jalabert, but of um, the, the, the French state-run television system. Well, can you, can, you explain, can you give us a little bit of context on that? Because I know you actually interviewed yeah. Jalabert. Can you, can you tell us what you mean by cowardice there? Oh, well, um, he, he, he used a lot of key phrases in... Uh, I mean, it, it's always possible that it was rank stupidity on his part, and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't rule, that as a, uh, rule that out as a hypothesis, but he used a lot of key phrases, hallucinant, which sort of means surreal... Um, you know, it's uh, super astonishing was one of the expressions he used to describe him um, um, on another planet, which, of course, was a, a headline in Le Keith back in uh, 2004, I think, describing Lance Armstrong, who was at the time not proven but suspected to be a, a big doper and so on and so forth. So a lot of key uh, phrases insinuating something um, without actually coming out and, and, and saying it. Um, I, I, another expression he used to describe um, Froome's time gains was verging on the ridiculous, um, etc., etc., without, um, without ever quoting any support for these suspicions uh, beyond the performance itself. Um, which is a bit ridiculous, really, because if you take away the the winner, so if you remove him from the race, you've got the guy who's in second place, who is winning the Tour de France, and then that becomes suspicious. So if you remove him from the race, then the guy who's in third place. And in the end, you know, if you remove 165 riders from the race, you've got the one last guy left, um, you know, who's, who's at the start of this process started four and a half hours behind or something, and he is now winning the Tour de France and thereby suspicious. Well, Matt, you say there's no storm, but uh, I'd take you up on that one. Uh, whatever about Jalabert, and uh, I, I see what you mean in that he's insinuating things without necessarily uh, br- bringing huge men to the table, the way you explain it, but you've got Anton Vayer, the anti-doping campaigner, released that video last week of Froome's climb to Mont Ventoux in 2013 with a load of data there, which... Hasn't was was actually it seemed to be referenced by Froome the other day and uh, certainly wasn't disputed. Brailsford then on on TV, uh, Pierre Salé, the physiology doctor, pouring over footage of Froome's win in the Pyrenees uh, a few days back and suggesting a certain watts per kilo uh, average, which uh, Brailsford absolutely disputes. I would put it to you that it has to be a storm, otherwise Sky wouldn't be go- wouldn't be releasing any of their data, which they chose to do on Tuesday. Yeah, well, I mean. Okay, maybe <laughs> maybe there is a storm. Um, but it's, I mean, as far as the watts are concerned, I mean, um, first of all, I mean, Sky was sort of lambasted in yesterday's L'Equipe for um, doing something frivolous. For what, what L'Equipe described it as throwing a bone to the baying journalists rather than uh, releasing, you know, full and comprehensive data to an expert who could then look at it and draw his own conclusions. So they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. Um, I remember um, Kittel being last year, Marcel Kittel, the German sprinter, being asked a year ago why he didn't release uh, all his power uh, data to, uh, to um, sort of silence his doubters. And he said, well, because if I do that, then if my rival 
you know, and, and the, tra- the coaches of my rivals see what my threshold values are, they can plan a strategy to beat me. Yeah, the French um, media have a point there, mm, though, Matt. It, it, mm. If it's generally accepted by everybody that these a selected amount of data is essentially irrelevant if you don't have a context to put in, if you don't have all the data. So as far as I can see, it is just a PR move. It seems to be something that will fend everyone off or they hoped would fend everyone off for the next week or so uh, and then everyone would forget about it after the Tour de France. I'm kind of, I'm, you say they're damned if they, they do or they're damned if they don't. I think maybe if they, if they didn't release the data, at least then they wouldn't be accused of what looks like a PR stunt as much as anything. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I agree with that, or, the, you know, the, the, the premise behind that question, which is, I think it's a mistake to, um, to go down the route of releasing data, or you release everything, but, I mean, you then have to, you also have to release information that possibly doesn't even exist. I mean, um, you know, one of the, I mean, the single most important piece of information, um, which no one has asked for and no one even mentions, is the calibration um, uh, uh, data for the power output meter that is being used for the SRM unit that's being used. You know, how is it calibrated? Was it calibrated recently? All the sort of information that, you know, in the good old days when it was just about um, hematocrit and red blood cell count, um, you know, the, 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 the UCI form um, included at the foot of it, when was the equipment last calibrated and how and is that calibration certified? You know, and until you, I mean, uh, you, you know, r- rather like um, the, the uh, wind tunnel um, engineers, um, the coaches, um, they're not measuring uh, in order to describe what happens they're measuring in order to improve performance to work out coaching strategies to improve the performance and um i remember you know jonathan Vorters, who's uh, uh, the, the 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 owner of uh, slipstream the management company for uh, cannondale garmin um you know one one of the uh, pioneering anti-doping uh, teams in the sport a few years ago saying, yeah, yeah, I know there's all this fuss about VO2 max, which is oxygen consumption, but we don't actually use that measurement anymore because it doesn't give us information that we can use. Now, the people asking for data are saying, well, I mean, if we don't have the VO2 max, none of this tells us anything, but it's not data that's necessarily used by sort of the most cutting edge coaches. It's an old, it's an approximate measurement it doesn't tell you how long you can absorb you know what oxygen levels you can absorb over a long period of time it's all very very technical and i don't understand it all Um, and i think that my feeling is that when you go down the route of you know all all this incredibly complex data um, that's incomplete and that may be incomplete for entirely innocent reasons um, it can be made to tell whatever story you want it to. And I think that that is a little bit what's happening with Antoine Vaya, with others. You know, if you are suspicious... Well, also with Sky, can, I mean, mm, Sky, yeah. are putting, Sky are putting their spin on this. And by doing so, they seem to be possibly muddying the waters even more. I mean, the power output that they came up with was uh, hu- hugely lower than what that French physiologist did. It was 5.78 watts per kilogram. Ross Tucker is a very, uh, seems very clued in on this. He's an ex- another physiologist, uh, a professor of exercise physiology, has pointed out that, look, 
these other guys like uh, Robert Gessink is another writer who has actually put his own stuff online or has had his power output online and he had a figure of 5.9 for that for the same climb that we're talking about here the point here is that this guy somehow manages Chris Real manages to leave a guy in the dirt by a minute and a half despite having less power output a lower watts per kilogram which seems extraordinary as Tucker said it's like a 60 mile an hour car going faster than a 70 mile an hour car no, I, I agree entirely, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm defending no one. I'm certainly not a cheerleader uh, for Sky, and I'm not a cheerleader for the uh, for, for, for Chris Froome either. Although I, I you know, I, I have to say that I, I think that there are. Um, if you look at the whole, if you look at the the the, the entirety of of the the, the the sort of the surrounding context as well as um, the uh, the power figures, uh, which are very difficult to make sense of, I agree. Um, and, 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 well, let, let's look at the wider... I mean, one thing is that, um, um, you know, with, with other riders, I can tell you a story that I've heard from one source. Um, and therefore, because it's only come from one source, I, I, I won't mention the rider that's... Um, it, it regards a coach who, at the top of a mountain in a... Uh, mountain um, uh, cons- uh, uh, training camp and took out his mobile phone and a bag of SIM cards, opened the phone, uh, r- removed one SIM card, replaced it with another SIM card, and then proceeded to make a, telepho- a telephone call um, discussing training data. Mm. Now, um, that in itself is the beginnings of... There's a question. Why have you done that? That looks like suspicious behaviour. You know, what, why has that been done? Now, this has come to me because I speak to um, people who investigate these things, people who listen in on phone calls on behalf of uh, police authorities and anti-doping authorities. And um, there is a question that bears on a grand tour protagonist. Now, I've heard nothing, absolutely nothing relating to Chris Froome uh, from um, anyone involved in uh, investigation of this type of thing, from any of his uh, ex-teammates, um, from any of his rivals. And if you look at, you know, this is the man who asked to be um, tested more uh, on payday at his training camp in um, in the Canary Islands, on Tenerife, because, you know, he was there, Contador was there, uh, Nibali, the other Tour de France contenders were all in training camps, um, and there, there, there was no anti there was no doping testing going on. So he, you know, uh, tweeted openly, publicly, you know, we need more testing here. Um, you know, he's come out and said, I'd be all in favour of a very, very controversial, um, you know, nighttime anti-doping tests. Um, Michelle Kuhn, his uh, wife. Um, has, a, has a past of, uh, you know, making very outspoken anti-doping comments on Twitter as well, and so on. And these are all stances that would be likely to raise the hackles of other dopers and lead, you know, other riders who disagree with, uh, you know, some of these ideas to, um, to come forward and say, well, what about dot, dot, dot? Sure, but there and is so still... Far, when it, there is no what, that, what about so far. When it comes mm. to little details about himself, such as the uh, the fact that he worked with David Walsh on an entire book, 
and didn't seem to see fit to mention that he was asthmatic at any stage during that, despite the fact that he ends up using an inhaler, which he got a, a TEU, a, a, a TUE, a therapeutic use exemption for. There, there are worrying, there are worrying parts to the Chris Froome story, even even away from what Sky are saying. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I agree entirely. I must say, um, I don't think Chris Froome has uh, written, has, has read Chris Froome's autobiography. And I've spoken to him about it, um, uh, uh, in fact, at the Vuelta last year, soon after I'd read it, I said to him, do you know what, I, I interviewed um, uh, Joaquim Rodriguez, of whom you say such nice things in your book, and I mentioned this to him, and he was very flattered and said thank you. And Chris had no idea that he had said such nice and flattering and humorous things about Rita Rodriguez in his book. So I don't think Chris knows very much about that autobiography. And um, so I, 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 you know, so that... that, Well, well, he did do an interview. Well, just last weekend, he did a a follow-up interview with David Walsh, and Walsh did ask him about the asthma, and he said, well, yeah, okay, I didn't say... I didn't admit the asthma in the past, and that's actually a mistake. I just thought there might be a stigma around that. I I probably should have admitted that I had asthma. Mm. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can say that um, I've uh, waited by... I mean, I, I don't want to come cro- across as though I'm being some, you know, great defender of, uh, of Chris Froome here. I can only say what I've seen. And I have stood next to him on many occasions uh, after mountain stages, after time trials, waiting to interview him and heard this sort of asthmatic, wheezing cough come from him, and uh, I think that he does suffer from exercise-induced asthma. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that now, yeah. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. So, uh, okay, so your point is... Well, my point is that he he didn't bring this up at any stage before, and he got himself in bother. Sky had, uh, during the tour of Romandy a couple of years ago, got a therapeutic use exemption for his asthma, which nobody knew about. If he talks about being transparent, and he does he does an interview with Paul Kimmy, he does this book with David Walsh, these are the kind of details. When you hear these details slipping through the net, you are you tend to be a little bit concerned. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was clearly a mistake. The question is, do we think that there's more to it? Um, I, I have... To the extent to which I'm able, I have my ears open. I have my uh, my contacts as a, as an investigative journalism uh, journalist, and and I, I uh, attempt to be uh, to interpret in a in a non naive way uh, what I see and hear around me, and I have nothing on Froome. It sounds I've like heard not, nothing yeah. on Froome, and um, I, I must say also, I, I mean, the I, I, I'm no physicist. Um, his pedal stroke, I mean, part of the uh, criticism of Jalabert, the insinuation of Jalabert, is that you know it's incredibly hard to pedal the way he does, and. Um, uh, 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 we're not used to seeing that, and it seems very strange. And it seems, you know, uh, uh, there's well, Sky. I remember the story of Tim Kerrison, the, the coach, who was sort of poached um, from uh, the, the jaws, I think, of English cricket, bizarrely, um, who was headhunted by 
uh, Dave Brailsford as, 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 as the leading endurance sport coach in the world in 2009. They spoke to him, Kerrison said, look, I don't know anything about cycling. And uh, so the story goes, uh, so the story told by Dave Brailsford goes, and Brailsford said, uh, well, we, that's okay. Go with the team. We don't want anything from you in the first year. Go, look, think outside the box. Um, and in October, we'll talk and we'll take it from there. And we want you to coach the team. Uh, and, and that degree of investment and of ambition has no parallel, to the best of my knowledge, anywhere else in cycling. Matt, can I ask and, you? And I, just, yeah, yeah, I, just, can. I know we have to wrap this up soon. You've got a stage to cover today. But it sounds like one point that you would agree with David Walsh on is something that he's been making in the last 24 hours. Uh, and that is that he trusts... When he's investigating this kind of thing, he trusts people. I suppose whistleblowers, for want of a better word, he didn't use that word, but he trusts people and witnesses rather than data and numbers when it comes to deciding the guilt or innocence of riders, of sports people. It sounds like you go along with that, uh, despite the fact that there are so many numbers around and there are, there are now, it seems, an increasing number of, uh, of experts who would be able to interpret those numbers. You still believe, your main reason for believing in Chris Room. I know you're saying you're not, you're not sitting here defending him, but you're, if you, you seem to be leaning that way because you haven't heard of anybody who says anything different. Well, I mean, even with the numbers, um, the, the numbers are there on the page. Without someone to interpret them and someone credible and someone who's offering you um, a, 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 a sort of depth and, and, and breadth and profundity of interpretation that leads you to trust them. I mean, in the end, it all comes down to people and it all comes down to who you find credible. And, um, yeah, and, and, and no one has come forward to the best of my knowledge, with anything that is, you know, anything but um, innuendo, innuendo. And, I, and, and, and in the end, as I say, you know, if you, if, you, if you, okay, remove the first person you're suspicious of, you then... You're left with the next, and uh, it gets you nowhere. Well, that's why, yeah, I, but know. that, well, I, th- I think you have to be, unfortunately, that's, mm. and, and this is the argument's made many ways, that's where cycling is now, that you do have mm. to be worried about the first guy, and if he is removed, unfortunately, you do have to be worried about the second guy. These mm. teams are now in a situation where they're having to, as Brailsford says himself, prove a negative, I think, Matt. But listen, uh, I know you have to get on with things there. Uh, we really pre- appreciate you taking the call. Glad you're enjoying the tour. Thanks a million. It's a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. In the final and on in again. And here Oh, what about that? Send him off! Send the drink to get off! Get him off the field! That was diabolical! Get him off the field! That's just typical what he is! Get him walking! They don't like it! Walk it, Campbell, you've got it in bottle! If you've got it in bottle, Campbell, it should walk! That was absolute diabolical! That should be sent off! He's going to be on a card. A car speak. Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send the drink to get off. You'll bottle this gate, Campbell. A car speak.
Lou Dickhead. Come on, Cass, we'll be in. Mikael wants it down your side. Oh, step back, step. Oh, that's his end. What a magnificent try. Seven of yours. He's the best club in the world. That was Matt Rendell covering the race for ITV. I spoke to Matt just before the start of today's stage 18. Just on the asthma issue, this is the relevant part of the interview with Walsh. So I'll quote from the interview on Sunday. A year ago, Froome applied for an emergency therapeutic use exemption to use a corticosteroid after an asthmatic, as, asthmatic attack threatened his participation in the Tour of Romandy. The majority of teams in that race were signatories to an agreement not to use TIEs, TUEs, I should say, to race, but not Sky. Were not Sky living by a lower ethical standard than many of their rivals? When doing interviews for his autobiography, he had not mentioned being asthmatic, I reminded him. I'd always seen it as a stigma, says Froome, in terms of how it is perceived by the public. People think sportsmen use it as a performance enhancer, and that's why I've probably held back from talking about it in the past. So as the point I was trying to ma- raise to Matt there was that he hasn't broken the rules by having asthma and dealing with his asthma, but he's, there's a little sin of omission there. Yeah, there is. And, you know, and, he, and he's more or less admitting that, like, uh, you know, it's a kind of, there's, there's some kind of guilt attached to that, you know, in his, in his head. But why would there be? Why should there be? You've got asthma. It's not a, you know, if you have asthma, an honest to goodness case of asthma, who cares if there are people out there who are like, oh, you know, asthma. We all know what that means. All the super athletes have asthma. You know, Paul Scholes, those guys. You know, <laughs> if there's one, if there's one thing that you know, a super athlete, oh, come on. If if there's if there's no problem with it, why not mention it? Mm. You know what I mean? It's like um, the problem only occurs when you haven't mentioned it. That's when the problems start. Mm. If you say I've got asthma, and it's and as Matt says, people can hear you wheezing asthmatically after races. Then you know there's not a problem. But when you all of a sudden you're not telling us something. And that's it, that's it, that's the thing. The it's whole part idea of an overall strategy by Teams Guy to not to be ver- to be selective in the information that to give you loads of information. But yeah, exactly. Which might necessarily be the most relevant stuff. For example, Brailsford didn't know Froome's weight. Claimed not to know the weight. Now this is why he was being, as he says himself, ambushed on French TV. So he could argue he was rattled, or maybe he just didn't want to give out the information. But to suggest that he doesn't know the weight of his main rider, uh, you know, I, I find I imagine he probably knows Froome's weight down to you know the gram. He knows what it is before a race, after a race, Jerry, mm. of course he does. So, I mean, if he doesn't, I, I suggest Team Sky buy weighing scales because this could actually, this information could help. How heavy is our rider? <laughs> <laughs> We've got all these other numbers. <laughs> that yeah. might be that sounds like some data that could be useful. Yeah. Just one last quote from the interview with Walsh at the weekend. Uh, right, it's now near 11 p.m. at the hotel, whatever the hotel is they're saying. Before leaving, I put it to him that if he is lying, is it a greater lie than Armstrong's, right? Froome says, yeah, I believe it probably would be. For it to happen once in the last 15 years was enough. For it to happen a second time, it would be criminal on a different level. But I know that is not going to happen. Ugh, it's just tantalizing when Froome says things like that and you think, ooh, well, that, that could come back to bite you. Well, I mean, what else is he going to say? I feel sorry for you. What, you know? what else is he going to say, though? <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if, if Chris Froome was innocent and if he's a doper, it's almost the same response to that question. Mm. You know, you know I'd, I'd hope that people would look at me differently, you know, maybe see that there were some motivations there, you know, and, and maybe say, hey, that Chris Froome, he's not that bad a guy. I mean, <laughs> if he said that, then I'd be pretty nervous. Yeah. But he didn't say that because that's the, like, that is, as you say again, that's the only thing he can say. If you're, if you're asked, you know, it's basically the question is, you know, are you doping? And the answer is obviously no. 
you know, for it to happen the second time, it would be criminal. I know he's using that as a turn of phrase, but it's that's a big word to use and one that would get thrown back at him, which is just another indication of what I'm talking about. That when Froome speaks, I'm thinking, oh, Froome. You're, you're, you agreed to do an interview with Paul Kim. Doing an interview with David Walsh might be seen as maybe uh, a different kind of option now. Yeah. Uh, the people are generally critical of Walsh for not going after this one as vociferously as he did. Although he, uh, with Armstrong, although he denies that, but Froome talked to talk reasonably well, I think. Compared, well, very, very, com- compared to his bosses, who should be better versed in this kind of thing. Froome has a very level tone. You know, he's real. <laughs> he's a He's a pretty zen kind of guy, you know. There's not a not a great deal of. I mean, whereas Armstrong was a lunatic. You know? <laughs> Armstrong <laughs> would just. Armstrong's very emotional, you know. He would get angry, you know. He would kind of gloat. He was full, He was just crazy. I'm still thinking back of his comments a couple of weeks ago about Seth Blatter and how this this corruption scandal is not a patch on my corruption yeah. scandal. I mean, I just think it's amazing. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I wonder what he thinks as he watches this. You know, <laughs> this this whole Tour de France thing. He's like. <laughs> you know, he must be so because I imagine Armstrong basically just thinks everybody is doping all the time, right? How how else could you other how else could he look at the world? He's like, of course everyone's doping. I mean, don't be stupid. You know, and he's just looking at this and kind of thinking, you know, thinking of that seven year gap that they struck out of the records. <laughs> I'm sure he hasn't taken those things down off the wall, you know, the jerseys down off the wall, but I don't know. Well, he, when Judy McCurr was interviewing him uh for her book last year. He was in the process of moving, of downsizing. He was moving out of that big mansion where he took that photo with those seven oh, yeah. frame photographs. And I believe they might have even, at one stage, he says to her, he's talking to her in that room and he says, hey, why don't you get a photo taken with the seven seven jerseys here, seven yellow jerseys? And she goes, no, you're all right. And he went, oh, yeah, and he said, oh. And she said it, she kind of killed the, killed the mood a little bit for a while there when she was trying to get a good interview. Why don't you get a photo taken with some of my stuff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, anyway, the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out later today. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, it's actually a ball, so. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> well, we're going to talk uh, a little bit of... We're going to... I mean, the Premier League season isn't too far away now. We're going to start talking about a couple of the things that are happening there. Focusing today on Manchester clubs. Ooh. I know they're not to everyone's taste, though. But they are a couple of big... Quite different clubs, and uh, they've been they've been busy. Owen, we're going to talk a little bit about some of that. Sounds good. Limerick's all-star defender Seamus Hickey is ready to go in the All Ireland quarterfinals this weekend. But just in your own season, first of all, Seamus, we haven't chatted to you since you were knocked out by Dublin, having lost badly to Tip in Munster. It obviously, didn't go well for you guys this year. Did you feel like you were just a little bit off it as it went along? Um, I think it's fair to say this year that we never we never caught fire once. Um, I don't think I don't remember a game this year where I said, "Yeah, this this is us playing to what we're capable of," um, and that was that was immensely frustrating, infinitely frustrating. That you know it's there and it's not it's not coming out in the field, and like you just you're, you're just wondering why. Especially throughout the league, we played Watford the first game, and you know I I felt I felt we were chasing the game all the way, all the way chasing that game. We got two penalties, uh, David Reedy. Really took two penalties and that's what got us a draw against Watford 
and then for every game every game in the remainder of the league I just I felt we were playing at 80 percent and I, I don't I don't know why we were missing the Kamalak lads early in the year now and that I suppose that's a that's a fairly significant part of our contingent um but we were missing the Napierty guys near the year before so it's uh I don't know. It's very hard to put your finger on it. Yeah, it's a funny one because presumably you're doing all the... Everyone's working as hard as they'd worked the previous couple of years. You're you're doing all the... I'm sure you're having your team meetings and you're discussing maybe yeah. why you're not firing all cylinders. <laughs> and yeah, it's, maybe it's inexplicable sometimes why, why a team can't just uh, hit the same heights they've been, they've been at. It's, it's funny. Sometimes, sometimes the more you talk about something, the less clear it is. Um, and maybe that was the same the, the situation with us this year. We were aware that we were aware that there was more in us. There was aware that there was potential there to be unlocked, and it, it just it just seemed like um, the more you thought about it, the less you understood it. And uh, I was just from an individual point of view, and I just I couldn't I couldn't understand it. And then and then we picked up injuries, very frustrating injuries at very frustrating times. Um, I pulled my hamstring. Against Offaly, and I'd never done ham. I've never had hamstring problems before. And I I couldn't understand where it was after coming out of, and little things started adding up. You know, Paul Brown got injured in the in the club championship before the Tipperary game. Richard McCarthy got injured before the Tipperary game, and Gavin Mahoney pulled his hamstring before the Tipperary game. It just we we couldn't understand what was going wrong, and we felt like we felt like there was uh, there was some karma out to get us <laughs> we couldn't understand it well a couple of the tip players were saying after after they won their last game that look uh, we've won a Munster title this year but we weren't far off at last year we ran into a really good Limerick team a couple of times in a row is there is it a sign that there's very little between the teams and that's maybe part of the frustration when you have a bad year like this that you know based on how close most of the teams are that uh, that you shouldn't be that you're not far away yeah, well, like I, I think, I think the the the, the fact that we got to two All Ireland semi-finals back to back, you know, that was that was no fluke by any means. Like, and I suppose we're seeing this year that, you know, that that Tipperary team that that got to All Ireland finals in in 2011, um, you know, the the bones of that team is still going, and they're a very very good team. I think this year we ran into them; they're very motivated. And we made very, very silly errors early in the game because we were up for the game uh, against Tipperary and you could actually see we were we were on an awful lot of the ball. We we actually had an awful lot of possession in the first half against Tipperary. But you know, you, you can you can chalk the the two goals in the first half down to individual errors, like, you know, I made a mistake for for the first Seamus Callan goal and and Richie unfortunately made a mistake for the, the second one. And you know, Richie McCarthy's probably been our most consistent player for the last three years without, you know, bar no one. And unfortunately, when you make mistakes, when you make mistakes against good teams, you get absolutely punished. And I think that was the case against Tip. Um, you know, because in the second half, we brought it back down to, a, you know, we, we brought it back down to a level game, a score game, and then had three wides back to back when we had, when we could have been pushing ahead and taking the game to Tipperary. Um and then I suppose the the bottom fell out of the bag, unfortunately, in the last ten fifteen minutes. Yeah, onto onto this weekend's games anyway. And um, to Dublin was a team that 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 in the end took care of you guys, and it was again a, like a very late goal that separated uh, you two that day. As a result, and you know that was a game that you were very much in control of. So as a result, maybe not a lot of people are backing Dublin against Waterford uh, this weekend. Do you see anything in them that would convince you otherwise in Dublin? I, I see Dublin actually very. They, 
it's it's funny that ourselves in Dublin met in that game because uh, I, 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 I kind of felt that we were having very similar trajectories through the year. The only difference between Dublin and ourselves is that Dublin had the form early in the year. Um, I thought that our league campaign was super. I thought it was a really, really excellent league campaign. Um, uh, that game against Cork, their first half in the in the league semi final was was incredible. Like I thought, I thought they heard fantastic stuff to be up to be up ten points at half time um, with the game pretty much out of sight. Um, you know, and then we we'll say in the league then against Galway, I, I barely recognised them. I, I didn't that that team that played Galway and Crow Park. It didn't look like the team that. Uh, that that I'd seen earlier in the year, um, it just seemed to be a small bit flat. And then the, the replay then was a bit of an abomination. Um, you know, they they're not that they're not that team that went down to Tullamore. Like, so you know, they came in against us. I'd say they were looking for a bit of confidence. We were we were really looking for confidence. Um, and I suppose we you had two two teams on a kind of a similar trajectory meeting in that game. I would argue that we were. Fairly, fairly in control of that game. That first, our first half was was dominating on everything bar the scoreboard, and that's inevitably what was our undoing, I suppose. But with, I suppose, back to your point, you know, there's not 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 enough a lot of people backing them. I still think I still think they're that team that we saw earlier in the league. We didn't have any form through the league. Uh, we didn't have any games in the league that people could have set up and said, "Oh, Limerick are Limerick are actually clicking this year." But I thought I thought early in the year Jerk Cunningham had had that team fairly singing. Um so there is there is form there and there is something to actually to go into the go into the banks um from earlier in the year and Although consistency yeah, consistency's always been the problem though, hasn't it? Even the Anthony Daly years, uh they'd have either a big year followed by an awful year or a big game followed by an awful game. Maybe this happens to all teams, but it seems Dublin in particular struggle with this. Yeah, well I you know, it's funny, I always found I always felt that like Dublin ourselves came from a very similar place um, around 2000 and like we two two great games against them in uh, 2008 2009 uh, when they were really finding their feet uh, and when I suppose Conal Keeney had decided to take hurling over football and things in Dublin hurling were were really only on an upward trajectory they beat us in the quarter final in 2009 or sorry 2011. Um, when, when Donald O'Grady was over us, we beat them in 2009 um, to get to an All-Ireland semi-final. They beat us in a quarter-final in 2011. So I, I always felt that they were coming from the same place and that the core of their team is actually around the same age as what the core of our team is. Um, so I don't know, I, I'd, I'd always have this kind of empathy uh, with Dublin and the inconsistency that Dublin have showed, you know, we've probably shown, maybe not as not as severe the kind of ups and downs that they've had, you know, they... They, um, when they won their Leinster title the following year was a bit of a, uh, I suppose, a, a write-off. Um, whereas we kind of we managed to go again, but it's um, it's kind of it's something that every team struggles with is getting that consistency, especially when you're not coming from a winning background and a winning tradition. You have to find your own feet and you have to find your own way. And confidence is harder to come by when, you know, the the we'll say the the experience of winning isn't there. Waterford have a different type of challenge. I mean, they were they're singing right through the league and the uh, championship so far. This is the first the Munster final, first game they've lost all year. Uh, w- would you back them to bounce back? Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. They remind me very much of. Um, they remind me very much of the Waterford teams. I said 
that had the, the kind of brazen confidence back in the in the middle of the thousands. I think that I think that they've got something that they believe in. I think they've got a system that they believe in, and um, I think that Derek McGrath is someone they're really rallying around. Um, last year was kind of a bit of trial and error, I'd say, and it, it didn't really didn't really come together last year. But they look like a team that's done a ferocious amount of work in the latter half, let's say the, the latter end of 2014 and hit 2015 with a, with a mission. like um, Especially the second half in the Munster final, I thought that there was, there was so much more in them. And I suppose some of the, some of the wides they hit were, uh, they were, they were very frustrating. And I, and I can imagine each and every one of them looking at the video of the Munster final the following day, thinking they really, they really had a, re, a go at Tipperary and they, they could have seen they could they could have seen silverware at the end of it. Um, I I thought that even Tipperary were quite subdued in in that game. I thought that they kind of I I, I thought that Waterford had a good a good setup to uh, to stifle them, and I and I thought Tipperary would find it very hard to get goals against Waterford, and, and so it proved. But um, I, it was it was it was amazing to to see ball after ball in the second half when the game was there was no there was nothing between the two teams and just ball after ball of the Watford team just sail wide so disheartening and so momentum killing um, like in against Cork in the Munster final last year we were very dominant in, in a, a patch in the first half of the game and just couldn't put those balls over the bar either um, and I would say this is similar we came out of that game thinking we played very well but made very basic mistakes, mistakes that we didn't think were characteristic of the team and we pushed on to a, a quarter-final and kind of unleashed on, on, on a poor Wexford team that, that had been playing four weeks in a row like so you know, it, I don't think it mattered who was in our way last year, we, we were we were coming back, we were bouncing back and we played a bit angry, I, I can see this Watford team doing the exact same thing, they, they played well for, for the vast majority of that game, it's just that they did things that I would consider to be, you know, stupid and that they themselves would not be happy with so I, I can see them coming back and against uh, against Dublin they're going to play angry and they're going to be very very hard to beat yeah I mean you you talk there about taking what you can from provincial finals um, and I don't really know what Galway can take from the Leinster final because uh, having been at the game myself I just couldn't believe how bad Galway's touch in that game was against Kilkenny so far off what was needed at this level, and that would be the biggest concern, I think, for for Galway fans going into the game against against Cork at the weekend. Yeah, Galway, Galway for me are more so than Cork, the unknown in this championship. They really are. I, I don't know. Are are they the team that beat Dublin in the replay? Um, I don't know. I, I I don't think that. I I think Dublin will say that you know that was that was an abomination, and that you know it really doesn't. It doesn't reflect the the difference between the two teams. Um, I I'd, I'd I'd fancy Cork in it. I I, I just think that uh, I think that Cork are actually taken away a bit nicely. And you know, the the kind of rough patch that Jimmy Barry had early in the year when people were kind of calling for this and that. Um, he seems to have he he seems to have ridden that out, and the players seem to be actually taking taking it on. Um, the car forwards are, are are a serious bunch. Like they really, really are. Um, when you have when you have Lahan, Horgan, Cronin, and Harnady all going well, it's it's a very, very hard team to stop. And I wonder have have Galway faced that successfully this year? You know, Kilkenny was their biggest test all year, and in the second half they seem to fade. 
I'd love I'd love to see I'd love to see Cork and Galway come and play we'll say play a serious game where both of them caught fire but um, it's hard to actually see that this year's championship doesn't has just hasn't produced that kind of uh, that game where two teams have just caught fire and, and gone against each other I don't know if, I don't know if it's there yeah I mean from say Patrick Horgan they were one of the, those forwards that you mentioned um, he's been finding it so difficult this year to actually get into games at full forward and maybe that's you know down to you know slightly more defensive structures and teams or whatever which we've talked about quite a bit already this summer I mean the fact that he's moved out to half forward um, it, it actually seems like it really suited him particularly against Clare where he basically grabbed Cork and pulled him over the line in the last 10 minutes with I think 5 points in a row yeah. Um you know he's 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 an interesting guy, and, it, and I mean it's interesting from his own personal point of view, but also just from the point of view of the game. That I mean, Jamie Clark is Armagh's best, you know, corner forward in for the Armagh footballers, and he played a bit of the league at wing back, such as the suffocating nature of intercounty football these days. Should yeah. we get used to more sort of Patrick Horgan's drifting out to centre forward and wing forward, and trying to get on the ball there where there's a bit more space maybe than uh, inside? Well, like I, I would consider Pat Horgan one of one of the best strikers of all in the game. Himself and Bubbles, Bubbles Dwyer, have just got the sweetest strike of a ball. It's incredible. Um, when Pat, when Pat Horgan has space, he'll ratchet up uh, an outrageous score. He went out around the middle against Dublin in the league semi-final uh, when they were nine points down. Now, fair enough. He hit most, I suppose, most of the scores he hit in the second half were from long range frees behind his own 65. But he still was out around the middle of the field winning ball, and you know he was dangerous every time he got the ball. It's, mo- I suppose, the, the common the common thought on 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 Horgan is if he's in the corner and if you stick to him like glue, if you man mark him, it's much easier to deny him that space. And it is, from experience, it's 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 significantly easier to deny a guy space in the corner than it is when he's out in the half hour line. A man mark a job in the half hour line, it's not really the done thing. Um, and it's harder to do because of the space that guys cover. And when you've got half forwards dropping out to midfield, and if you're man marking a guy, you're leaving you're leaving a ton of space behind you and you're just exposing your cornerback. So I think I think that half forward does suit Horgan in a lot of ways. Um and it just you know, when I think of the big games last year and even against um Dublin in the league this year when Cork went riot above in Croke Park he he did an awful lot of damage from we'll say between the 45 and the 65 where he got onto a breaking ball and just you know threw out that ridiculous golf swing of his and the ball went straight between the uprights he he has that ability and you know you you'd be silly you'd be silly to think that um You'd be silly to think that pace or or whatever like that around the half the half hour line uh, is the deciding factor. If you can hit if you can hit points from distance, you are a very very dangerous threat. Seamus, you said that it's harder to man mark out the field, but you see in soccer that it's been done over the years. In I remember the All Ireland final football final between Cork and and Down. Marty Clark really struggled it into the game because Noel O'Leary just was on his back no matter where he went on the field. Mm. Is it a little bit different in hurling? I, I don't think I don't, I don't think so. Like, um, for example, in the league this year when we played Dublin um, in Crow Park in the quarter final, um, we man marked Danny Sutcliffe, and Danny Sutcliffe had a very quiet game. Dan Morrissey did keep him quiet, but Shute had one of the games of his life because there was an outrageous amount of space 
behind where Danny Sutcliffe should have been. And we had a we had a situation where Sutcliffe was picking up a ball on the run, um, 45 meters out with Richie McCarthy, our full back, who was supposed to be minding the square, you know, tailing him. So you know that was a nightmare scenario for us, and we didn't fix it. Uh, so it, it's it's what I'm saying. It's harder to man mark a guy out the field is if you stick to him and he starts wandering out between the two 65s, you're leaving you're leaving your full back line open to all sorts of hurt. And that's that's a that's a delicate balance. Well, essentially, what Davy Davy Fitz was doing was you know Davy Fitz was bringing back a sweeper under every conditions and having his three half backs as man markers. And leaving that sweeper deal with the space that's left left behind him, and what he's done is it seems to be you know it's it's a as they say in in other sports it's it's a copycat league you know it's a you know we've seen we've seen an awful lot more sweepers there a lot of the time teams are have sweepers because the other team is just bringing out their corner forward and they just they just end up with a sweeper and it, it wasn't really their choice they just they just have one, um, but when you're talking about let's if if we if we were to man mark Pat Horgan. And we were to put a guy on him, we'd have to have someone behind to make sure that the space, the space that's left by that man marking job isn't exploited. You'd have to do something like that. Yeah, it sounds like you're going for Waterford and Cork this weekend. Seamus, listen, great to catch up. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. a humorous competition. I thought that. Important man for my selection. Some point James made there about Limerick's year, Murph, that uh, they, I mentioned the meetings, that you, you think that you would be working these issues out as you go along. And uh, oftentimes, these, generally when a, a, the story of a season is written, you can fit those kind of team meetings in whatever way mm. you need. You know, Rob Kearney steps up in Enfield the year before Ireland win the Grand Slam and tells all those Munster players... Monster players, the time you started caring for the Ireland, for the mm. green jerseys as much as you do for the red. And that's seen as one of these seminal moments when you, they could have easily had a bad season and you could have said, oh, yeah, Brian Driscoll doesn't... Rob Kearney said, Rob Kearney slagged off the Monster players. Yeah, Brian Driscoll doesn't burrow in for one of those four drives he got. And <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, I suppose the season really started to derail when uh, Rob Kearney slagged off half our team saying that they didn't care enough. I mean, this, this like that's completely it. The history is, is written by the winners. And you rarely hear sports people talking about those meetings in a negative way. Not that Seamus is saying that they shouldn't have been talking through the issues, but sometimes it gets to a stage where it's, what are we talking about here, really? Yeah. You know, we're, yeah. hur- we're hurlers. We, should, we have our plan. We have our tactics. We're not playing well, and we all know what we're supposed to be doing. We're just not doing it as well as we've been doing it for the last couple of years. I mean, I remember being in team meetings in the you know, at the crappy level that I played in, thinking this this is it. Like I you know, I'm I one day I'm gonna write an article about this, mm. about how amazing this meeting was and about how amazing the team spirit is in this in this camp at the moment. <laughs> I remember one in particular the day before a game that we played, um I'm trying to think of the exact year, but we 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 got in the winning captain of the first Milltown team that ever won a county title and he spoke really well. And a couple of other people spoke really well. And I was like, 
this is what it's like to be an elite sportsman. <laughs> you know, we've, ju- we've just had the rallying call from an ex-superstar. Our manager's spoken really well. Our players have done what they've needed to do. Now let's go out there and just just go for it. Just Let's just do it. And that was the day before we had three players sent off, including me, and we got knocked out in the <laughs> county quarterfinal. So it just goes to show... What did you get sent over? Oh, two yellow cards. Well, like, I, don't want to talk about, I still don't want to talk about I it. I played it in even lower. I, mean, I finished playing GA competitively at minor level, uh, but that didn't mean that didn't prevent me from the team psychologist or psychiatrist, whatever it is, uh, experience. Mm. They brought in this professional. Mm. He comes in uh, it's at minor level, about to play a big championship game, and there's a big team meeting. It's all very exciting. He said, right, first of all, do we all believe that we... I don't think it was that we can win. It's do we all believe that we're going to win mm. uh, tomorrow? And of course, everyone says, "Yeah, oh yeah, of course, yeah." Except I, one, I one, hope so. Except one. Well, there's a bit of that, yeah. Except one guy who said, "Put his hand up and said no." Now this fellow was the guy who would always be the prankster, Murph. Yeah, we, we all know them. But he'd also be somebody who would have spoken his mind, and he puts his hand up and he says, I, "No, I don't think so." And the the guy's like, "What? Well, why not?" And he's like, "Well, I mean, we played them in the league and they beat us by two points. Mm. And, you know, we've actually got a couple of injuries." <laughs> like all these like very logical issues, uh, kind of killed the meeting a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I must yeah. say because I don't think that was supposed to be the answer, especially when you're 17 or 18. Maybe you're expecting. <laughs> well, did the, did the um, psychologist or whatever not have a kind of ready-made response? Sure, he he's telling me this had never it. happened before, and whenever he tried this. Uh, well, someone, someone I'm stumped. <laughs> I've encountered a negative thought. Turns, turns I, to the um, manager just goes <laughs> In all of my years of professionalism, I've never <laughs> come across an attitude quite like this. Okay, let's get into this, Kira. Right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? You got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Bone and bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. Yes, and it's been a big couple of weeks for the P. Basil community. Pierce remains at large here in Dublin, representing while across the globe. Our listeners go to ever greater heights to show their dedication. I say ever greater heights, but that's not strictly true, of course. Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, on to the, this week's email from Liam Scally. Gents, firstly, thanks for the recent interview with Paul Devaney about his experiences on Everest. Just the kind of outstanding left-field content that has always set you apart from the competition. Uh, we're, How are you? Ah, uh, Liam. You sure know how to get your email read out on this particular slot, but anyway. However, as I listened to his heroic exploits, I knew deep, deep inside me that something was missing from his efforts. A hashtag p selfie on each summit. So on the 30th of July, I'm planning to climb Mont Blanc to raise €20,000 for the Laura Lynn Hospice in Dublin. I'm hoping to get the second highest p second highest p after Kilimanjaro, which roughly translates from Swahili as the sugar loaf of Africa. And... Uh, Mountaineer snobbery is what we're really getting <laughs> at. And uh, really crank up the pressure on someone to get cracking on the inevitable Everest P-Bezel arms race. This P-Bezel will have extra significance for me as the idea came to me on Saturday when I met the great man Pierce himself filming on Grand Canal Square. Can you imagine the smile on my face as I camp high on the Col du Midi at 3,500 metres, sipping on black tea and listening to the podcast in my tent? I'd be massively grateful if you could make the shout-out and retweet the link to my charity page on the 23rd of July show or close to it. Data roaming may cost me more than the French tolls, but it will be worth it. I'd also be happy to plant a second captain's flag on the summit if you want. More compliments for us. More compliments for us. (laughs) Yada, yada, yada. Yours sincerely, Liam Scally. So good man, Liam. A little bit of charity work is good for the soul. Uh, Ken Early will always tell you that. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't have time to give the man a second captain's flag. Uh, before departure, uh, I mean, have we? Do we even have a second captain's flag? I don't. Think, I haven't seen one mm. around the office. Well, apart from the twenty-foot one that adorns our TV show, like some kind of nineteen-thirties political rally, 
Uh, but I'm sure Liam will in due course supply us with some photographic evidence of his love for Pierce Brosnan. So the very best of luck to you, Liam, in your charity work endeavours. Well done, Liam, and uh, enjoy it too. That's almost it. Ken, we did well to engage your brain in this show because I, I must say, I have to tell our listeners here, we spent most of your day lost in your laptop there following some sort of massive worldwide story of great import. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me, it was a bit like the Gary Lineker, Steve Ryder thing. Um, yeah. Except it was a kind of, uh, it's a four-way dust-up. I don't know why I'm, t- why I'm saying this. Everybody knows this story. Everyone's, everyone's been reading this story like for the last couple of days. Nicki Minaj versus Taylor Swift versus Katy Perry, who's trying to drag Rihanna into it as well. <laughs> it's actually pretty much like wrestling now. Yeah. It's kind of got, it's got into the sort of the WWE zone. That sounds like a Royal Rumble if you're getting that many people involved. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, What I'd, was the genesis of this problem, Ken? I mean, is it such a thorny, involved subject that we, you can't even begin to explain it over the course of an hour-long podcast? Nicki Minaj. Sports podcast, we should say. <laughs> Nicki Minaj was pretty unhappy that the video for Anaconda yeah. didn't get nominated for... VMO award or something? <laughs> I don't even know what awards we're it's talking the, about. It's the MTV Video Awards. Okay, isn't it? Uh, I yeah. don't. I don't. And she's like, I can't believe this didn't get nominated. I mean, the video has been viewed like seventy-five billion times. I mean, the, the video has been viewed so many times that it looks as though everyone on the planet has watched it an average of twenty times, right? <laughs> so uh, you could you could say it's made an impact. Mm-hmm. Taylor Swift, though, not not impressed. Essentially, Nicki Minaj suggested that the reason. You know, oh, you know, the other kind of artist might, if I was a different kind of artist, you know, maybe I'd be getting nominated for these awards. And then also talking about how if you, if you do a video that celebrates uh, very slim bodies, maybe you'll get an award. Of course, Taylor Swift is nominated and she's got all these like Victoria's Secret models in her video. So she's like, uh-uh, she doesn't like it. <laughs> she doesn't like that. And uh, she's essentially saying, um, you know, it's you're trying to pit women against each other, Nikki, like I'm really disappointed in you. And Nicki Minaj is saying, no, girl, you know, I love you. I still love you, but, you know, I really think you should speak out on this. Like, you should use your political cloud because this is a serious issue of injustice. And Taylor, to which Taylor Swift's response is, look, if I win the award, I want you to come up on stage with me. You're, oh, always, no. you're always welcome to any stage I'm on. You know, whenever I'm picking up an award, you're always welcome to come <laughs> out and, like, you know, stand there with me if, if, if you want. So, you know, all I'm saying is, Things are getting, and then Katy Perry's got involved as well. And see, for listeners who may not know the background to this, and I know probably there aren't any, but you know Taylor Swift and Katy Perry used to be friends, but now not so much. No, and, they're not. Uh, Taylor may have written a song about you know like a female friend of hers who she used to be friends with, but now isn't friends with. Yeah. So I mean, Kate, like Katy's getting burnt there as well. So she's got to speak up on this, Kent. You it's know, hard, she it's can't hard to pick sides in this one, really, isn't it? Um, I don't. I don't know if there's any need necessarily to pick sides. Well, as well. it plays, it continues to play out over the coming as, months. As publicly as possible, I'll go, I'll go with Nicki Minaj for the work. I mean. Okay, Ken's Taylor Swift, obviously. So that leaves me with Katy Perry. Katy Perry. Okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. We'll get to work on the football podcast now. Feel free to check. <laughs> not, not for a couple of hours though. We've, this story's got to run and run. Oh yeah, we're just going to keep talking about this story, but we might as well knock off all the microphones at this stage and uh, chat to you a little bit later on. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 